This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, once again, we're back. You've got the DLR Cast, the only podcast that we know of by and for fans of the mighty one, the mighty Diamond David Lee Roth. As always, I'm Steve, along with my good friend Darren Paltrowitz. What's happening, Darren? Steve, every Sunday that I get to speak with you is a good one. Are you great <laughs> like I'm great? <laughs> I'm I'm great, but I'm getting better, my friend. I've been trying to figure out what's going on with Dave. I can't seem to figure it out right now. Well, I, who can really? You know, we're coming off of the Rogan thing. That was a mystery to us. We spoke about that the last episode. Yes. As far as the timing wise, it was perfectly timed to coincide, I guess, close to perfectly timed to coincide with the release of that latest song, Giddy Up, yeah. which we're all presuming is from the, I guess, near mythical album he did with John <laughs> Five somewhere yeah. maybe in the late aughts or maybe 2010 or 11, at least seven, eight years ago, at the very least. Right. Yeah. And. They meant it took them two plus hours to finally mention the song at all on that meandering, not sure what road that podcast was going episode. Yeah, I can't describe that any better. And being a, you know, a music industry insider. No, I'm kidding. As a person (laughs) who does a lot of interviews, I get press releases all the time. And I luckily get all the Kiss stuff which is, you know, I'm a KISS fan. I've done a lot of KISS-related interviews. I'm always happy to get it. And the KISS press releases generally mention who the opening act is because I guess it's an extra association. And so when Dave was touring with KISS, David Lee Roth was mentioned in the KISS stuff. Yeah. The press release that I got a week or so ago did not say David Lee Roth in it. You look at Ticketmaster, the gigs, He's not linked to those things. You look at the DavidLeeRoth.com website, which I remember a couple of months ago had the tour on there. It had the joke. Maybe you'll remember the exact verbiage. I think it was the final tour, unless we say it isn't the final tour. Was that what it is? I think, yeah, something along those the lines. I think, you, I, think, not. I think you hit it. Yeah. Uh, you click on David Lee Roth now. There's no tour date section anymore. Yeah, so that's what we can. That's the we do know what's not happening, and that is tour dates. And I'm not sure why he's not going out with Kiss. What happened there? I mean, it obviously worked for that one leg they did pre-COVID. I wonder if this has anything to do with COVID at all. I mean, let's just assume everybody's vaccinated. Dave's a smart guy. He took this whole thing seriously. Mm-hmm. Maybe he doesn't want to go out on the road in the midst of all this. I. It's tough to speculate. It just seemed to be he'll have been off the road now for. An, over a year and a half, right? Yeah. And when he was getting ahead of steam and, you know, he doesn't need to tour around a new record. There's not going to be a brand new record that he's going to tour. It's not like he's going to release this record he did with John Five, put a band together and go out and do clubs doing acoustic versions, right? Or whatever it might be. Who the hell knows? But this would seem to be, to continue, would seem to be a no-brainer because he was really well-received, the band was hot, the timing was really good. It's just more mysteries. I mean, I was thinking the other day, I still can't believe we spent two and a half plus hours on the Rogan podcast and Eddie's uh, name was even mentioned. The first interview Dave did since Eddie's death. You know, and just looking at social media, we'll get to that, get a little bit more in depth on that. You know, he mentioned early on in that about 20 some odd minutes in that about a picture, I think it was of him and his dad. And uh, this little, and so that was posted back on May 31st. It's mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the social media is kind of slowed down. So let's get to that because 
the artwork was, you know, he hadn't really put up much artwork after the beginning of June, but just the other day, we've got an image, not exactly sure. It says Diamond. I'm, maybe you can figure it out, but it says Beverly Hill Gets Gangsta. True story coming soon. What's coming soon? Okay. There's three things come to mind. First one is we're getting a sequel to the Roth Project. That I, Good point, my friend, with all these illustrations. Hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is the dude is out of his mind <laughs> and it's just a bunch of disconnected disconnected thoughts like going back to that joe rogan podcast when i made fun of this you don't have to jump on the bandwagon here but when when david lee roth is looking at particular dancing or things that van halen did and saying that's the street corner in the in the poor neighborhoods man and it's like no i don't i don't think you've been in a poor neighborhood in a while dave for all we know that this is just the kind of hyperbole that says lightning bolt in your cheerios beverly hills gets gangsta because he references beverly hills a lot in crazy from the heat and in general yeah I, I got to demur, though, as far as him being crazy, crazy like a fox, maybe. Let's <laughs> call it eccentric. There's some plan. There's some thought out thing here, even if it is just completely disjointed at our level from what we see. I mean, there was a whole story. It's tough to follow from all from all these illustrations. I mean, the bike thing, somebody was in his house, the break, whatever. I mean, it was a little tough to follow. And I don't remember all of it at the moment. Like I said, it was pretty tough to follow. I mean, I'd like to get this in some sort of book form or something yeah. like the Roth Project instead of having to go back every couple days and go, Okay, so this is the next image from this story. Okay, let's go yeah. back to Tuesday. When you know what I mean? It, it was legitimately tough to follow. I'm not here to critique or argue about the format of it, but I don't know if there's necessarily a big grand plan for all this together. I just think it's it's whatever strikes his fancy at the time, man. And that's I've yeah. said it before. That's one of the things I love about him. the strategy is. There's hardly no fucking strategy. <laughs> hey, I got a question. I've never heard anyone address this, and I'm putting you on the spot here. This might be one of those questions you elevate to Greg Renoff. Okay. We all know that when he left Van Halen in 85, that the EP came out, and he also had a contract to do a movie for CBS or Sony, whatever it was it called. Was CBS Picture. C- yeah, CBS had a movie studio. CBS Pictures or something, which went under in the midst of the development of that film. There was a script. There is a script out there. Yes, that was going to be my question. Has anyone ever seen the script of this film? Has anyone ever picked it apart? Oh, man. It doesn't it – does, wow. I, good question. I, I, you know, I've, I'm, I know parts of it has been reproduced somewhere. Uh, where – what – what book was some of it in? Was it Renoff's book? I can't. He was talking about it in in his oh, own. Oh, was it Noel, Noel Monk's book? Okay, I haven't. I have to admit, I haven't finished Noel Monk's book yet. Dave described the premise of it, but he did it in a humorous way, like uh, to kind of make fun of the fact that it was kind of nonsensical. But I was wondering if we get the script. If one day we figure out that every single thing he did in his career is somehow tied into the script, that this script was going to be the thing that explained everything in his career. Man, that's – there's some – 
Yeah, that's a lot of dots to connect there. I, I, I <laughs> man, I don't know. There's a, there's some bizarre TV plot in there. I'm not exactly sure from a T. Yeah, I'd call that a stretch, but I'm not exactly sure. I will call it this. It's certainly creative on your part. But then, but I will pat myself on the back. Something I've called that in a bunch of episodes here. The end of the Little Ain't Enough video when he says 2020, the yes. final tour. Um. Guess did, what? He's not on the road in 2021. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering if all of this, such a smart guy, all of this was pre-planned. I don't know that. I'll tell you that. Um, that is pretty. That's a that's a deep theory, my friend. I'm telling you right now, that's going to I suffer enough from insomnia. That what do you think <laughs> that's going to keep me up now on a Sunday night? I'm going to be looking for if you're listen in any sort of quote unquote conspiracy theory. If you want to find clues, you'll find them somehow, some way, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but I derailed this whole thing. Beverly Hills gets gangs. So could it be the Roth Project? Could it just be a dark sense of humor? Could it be a bunch of disjointed things? Could there be a coffee table book with all of this? I don't know. Any other theories here? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I've... Because, you know, a couple weeks ago, and now this is farther a couple weeks ago, back way back on April 5th, there was in the midst of all these in the midst of the cart, the comics, cartoons, whatever you want to talk about, the, the sketches, uh, you know, telling this story about the bike and wherever else it went. Like I said, I got to go back and read. All. I've read it every day, but it was and it wasn't very linear to me on how I like to follow a story because it's right. social media. But back on April 5th, there was a singular uh, image of what looked like three Asian guys with sledgehammer. They had like Japanese sort of samurai outfits, right? Mm -hmm. And they're swinging sledge sledgehammers at, on like an anvil. or so They're making something, it looks like, right? Three of them with these hammer things. It says something new and then coming soon. And I remember we talked about this, like, what does this mean? And then, well, come ju early June, I mean, it, this was in the midst of the comics. So it's not like, it, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like he was referencing that, that it's coming soon. I mean, this whole could, thing could be nothing. Maybe a social media manager slipped and that should have been out in March ahead of, ahead of, uh, ahead of the, uh, the whole uh, story thing, which started right around, um, you know, which started, what was it? And I, I can't even keep up anymore in early April. So yeah, man, I don't know. It's fun to speculate. Um, that's right. for sure. So, but on some other news, let's get in the Wayback Machine for a minute, because 35 years ago this week was the premiere of the Yankee Rose single off of Dave's first solo album, full solo album, Eat Him and Smile, of course, featuring Greg Bissonette on drums, the inimitable Billy Sheehan on bass guitar and blowing everyone's minds because 95% of rock fans for 95% of the rock fans, this was the first time they heard Steve Vai on guitar. And the result was an amazing record. I can remember exactly when I heard that I had like tears of joy in my eyes and mm -hmm. I was like, my friends were so sick of me. They were, you know, already they was like, let's see what he do they do with Sammy. It's like, fuck you. Listen to this. Are you kidding me? And naturally immediately, and you can never win this, this where there was a comparison to Eddie. Right. Yeah. But, the bottom line is, pardon the pun, the single was great. The video was crazy. And there's been yeah. some there's been some great quotes this week. Uh, and some of them sound familiar. I know I've read variations of this before, but uh, a couple uh, 
news outlets or whoever reached out to Vi and she and Vi in particular, and they said yeah, there was such great memories. We changed costumes for that video every single shot. They Dave was just said go. You know there was the only direction was absolutely go crazy. Don't hold back. And the result was uh, certainly a single that was more over the top and I think better than anything on 5150. And the video, of course. The bizarre. I thought it was they. It was bizarre in 1986. I still don't know. Someone, no one pulled Dave aside and said, "Listen, those leotards. Here's the deal. You know." And I don't know. Not to get way too deep in this, but these. This is what I. These were the arguments I had in 90, 1986. I argued vociferously that that was not a hair weave back then, but it certainly looked different than what he was sporting in on the 1984 tour, right? So these are the yeah. arguments I had. That yeah. is correct. And you're not the first person to surmise that one. But, hey, I got to interrupt. If we can go back to Twitter, a very curious thing about Dave's Twitter account is that it follows four accounts. Are you aware of this? No. It follows four accounts, and they are Van Halen, House of Blues Las Vegas, a.k.a. where the residency was, Kiss, and Colin Smith. Do you recognize the name Colin Smith? I do not. He's mentioned him in a few interviews. That's the guy that he describes as being the Beatles of Photoshop. Ah, okay. So that's pro. So that see, he's got a social media guy. Of course, you, you to manage all that. To manage that, you've got s- nearly seven hundred thousand followers on Facebook. I mean, I'm sure he directs it all, but someone's doing the someone's doing the physical work there, and I would. I would bet Dave does not know who he follows on Twitter. Well, you go, your mind goes that way. My mind goes, his social <laughs> media is run by Colin Smith and he has all the answers. Okay. There Come you on. go. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. It took yeah. me a long way just to say what you just said. Yeah. So of, of course, when, when you run a social media account, you follow <laughs> yourself on it. Yeah. So, so, uh, Colin Smith, uh, Hopefully, hopefully you're putting some good out into the world in the time to come, because we have loved the art and the the videos that you've helped foster into society. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. It was. um, uh, Yeah, whatever's going on there, um, you know, it's it's just it's just a mystery. It's consistently a mystery. I got to go back and correct myself for a minute. Correct the record. I seem to remember that that. That illustration I told you, it said um, coming soon, came in the midst of the and these are this is totally split in hairs. But lest we get tweets or comments or whatever, <laughs> and I try to be as thorough as possible, even yeah. if the thoughts come way after my mouth is talking. But that something new coming soon, I seem to remember it being in the midst of the story. But that was April 5th. And then the next post on that was April 12th and starts, true story. I knew something was wrong right away. He had a weekend haircut, one of the best haircuts ever, in a beatbox north of Orange Grove where the Van Halens and I grew up. The folks would recognize both. So that was, I think, the start of what, you know, the whole the whole next serial, unless I missed a post here or something. But I just remember going, okay, what does this mean? And not connecting. I thought it was in the midst of the – just, yeah, it's uh, – I stand corrected if that's the case. So um, I got to get I want to get back to uh, eat them and smile for a minute because. Sure. sure. Because, 35 years. Yeah. One thing we never heard from again after the the very the quickly aborted attempt in a club was any sort of 
uh, reunion from the Eat 'Em and Smile Band, or even, and I'm kind of surprised too when you look at some of the cast, of, some of the people who played and was a revolving door as far as personnel on studio records, mm-hmm. that after a little, after a little a enough, uh, Matt Bissonette never played with him again on any record. Uh, we know, you know, maybe there's some outtakes, whatever. Greg Bissonette didn't. Vi didn't make a quick appearance somewhere. Sheehan didn't. Although with those two, I got to think, if you put those two guys together individually on, let's say, I don't know, a song on the DLR band or heaven forbid the your filthy little mouth. I mean, that would just take away from as far as the rock press concern, that would just that would just be the angle everybody would want to talk about, right? If they showed up on one of those records in like even a guest role. I think that Greg Bissonette did play on this uh unknown giddy up. Oh, yes, the, I think you're right. Yeah, but as far as you are correct. Yeah. But as far as release stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Bissonette was on any songs in Diamond Dave. I think it was all Ray Luzier. And yeah. when he was doing press on it, he was talking about how all it was a lot of people from the Guitar Institute that he'd found locally. And we know that the DLR band over the years had some people come out of the Atomic Punks that he always seemed to be looking for the younger people, the next Eddie Van Halen, that kind of situation. I wonder if that's what it is. Could be. I mean, certainly you need someone who has got uh, prodigious prodigious talent to to fill both Eddie's shoes, try to at least, or at least to, you know, do service to those songs in the right way. Uh, But, both Eddie and and Steve Vai. But when you look at it post Skyscraper, this always bugged me as far as Setless goes. I mean, they were so heavily loaded to Van Halen. I mean, if you got just like Paradise, you were lucky. I mean, I was we we've talked about this before, but those solo gigs, I mean, to hear Big Train when he was out on the road with Kiss and then in Las Vegas was like that was just a little nugget, a little treat. It's like, oh man, what I would give to have heard uh I don't know, a little ain't enough. That was a single at the radio on yeah. the radio. That's I don't think that's ever been played since uh, maybe those first couple of years after that album came out. I, I don't, was it ever played on the Your Filthy Little Mouth tour? Um, I don't. I don't. You think know, so. we we could ask Ron Wixo about that. Hey, yeah. what else was in the set list besides dancing? I don't <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think. But you know what I'm saying. So it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you you. De- you didn't necessarily need a guitar player to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Like I think you did. Certainly you needed somebody uh, like a Vi and then later on Jason Becker. Yeah. Uh, because those first three records were just, they were each statements in their own right, especially those first two. Yeah. And whereas uh, as far as, you know, as far as rocking and as far as, you know, at the peak of his solo career, you needed that, you needed that, not the young gun the new fresh face sort of thing right and but since then both on the record the exception of dlr band there was some serious shredding on there but that was that was uh john five and i think uh um uh terry um kilgore kilgore was on some of that record too uh you know for the most part outside of doing the van halen stuff you didn't need that virtu- virtuoso sort of shredding sort of guy Probably not. So going back to what you were saying, though, yeah, Matt Bissonette was not around after Skyscraper. 
the there was less emphasis on who was in the band after Skyscraper, I think. Oh, he, yeah, uh, absolutely. He didn't have that foil on stage to play off of. It's it's not like uh, the guitar player would run around the stage next to Dave. There's a lot of those great live clips of how um, Sheehan would be on stage left and Vi would be on stage right, and they like alternate places. They're like sprinting at each other. Oh yeah, they were insane. Whereas, um, <laughs> I, I, there's this joke I enjoy about the guy who's been in Bon Jovi the last like 25, 30 years. His name Hugh McDonald. The bass right. The, the bass player was never the official member, but basically played on every record since the very first Bon Jovi record, right? Yeah. You don't see him like go outside of a five foot radius on stage because he's going to get electrocuted. That's one of ah. the jokes. Like his ankle monitor will go off. You, you don't see the people in Dave's band after Skyscraper really moving around the stage much. There was Brian, Brian Young was, you know, for all intents and purposes, like Dave's on stage foil he seemed like an equal but he wasn't you know jumping off of amps or anything i'm like trying that. to think back to the little ain't enough tour and there is that overseas um there is that overseas god i can't remember where it was it was in the uk there is a, a cool youtube concert that the quality is fairly good we actually had two guitar players he had a rhythm guitar so when that tour when he came over in the u.s i saw that and i think it was with extreme and cinderella and in a maybe three quarters full Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, now I think it's called the Pepsi Arena. You know, that was an 18,000 yeah. seater. There was no rhythm guitarist, of which I was like, huh. And even then I knew, OK, well, that's clearly because of economics. Right. You, I mean, but he went out originally. I mean, I think that was Brett Tuggle, Matt and Greg Bissonette on basing it. Well, wait a minute. I think Not maybe even, it was. Thank I, think you. It may, I think it was Todd Jensen on uh, bass guitar. Yes. I want to say Joe Holmes on guitar. Correct. Joe Holmes replaced Jason Becker when he got sick after yeah. that. Yeah. And I just remember at the time going, I mean, I loved watching all of them on stage, but at that point it was really became really the Dave show, which I think is inevitable. It's his name on the marquee. It's his name on the albums. And certainly as far as stage presence wise, I think you could have, fa- I mean, Maybe those guys didn't cut loose, but you could have found somebody that was kind of over the top and the same, close to. I mean, I think it was such a special error for that Ian and Smile. You got to go. I mean, just from the just from the look of the band to Dave was like he had such something to prove. It was just like, all right, you know what? There's there's no breaks on this thing, guys. And that's why I was thinking, too, how I think both Vi and or Sheehan both described their solo spot. Dave said. He described it and he goes, make it like a tractor pull. Did you ever hear that quote? Just go no. go back and forth. Back, you know what? Just you one up and the next person. You one up. And if you remember their solo spot, they were chasing each other around on stage. Yeah. I, no one had ever seen anything like that. Certainly there was it for all the movement Eddie and Mike had on stage, which was awesome. Right. There was I mean, you know, a lot of that was choreographed and they do that kind of that 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 kind of uh that kind of hopping bit from the drum riser up to up to the front of the stage. Remember the three of them yeah. kind of in unison. There was those guys, obviously all, you know, Alex included, there was great, for lack of a better word, choreography and stage presence. Yes. But what we saw with Edom and Smile was even more over the top than that. I mean, you know, Sheehan and Vi are throwing their guitars over their shoulders yes. and 
Yeah, you know, Sheehan's wearing a knee pad because he's, you know, he's on his knees and he's just tumble. I mean, it was, it was insanity. And we do see that in the Yankee Rose video. We see plenty of Vi throwing the guitar in the air. And that video is not nearly as insane as going crazy, which <laughs> the intro of that video is one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, exactly. Well, the intro to Yankee Rose is great, too, uh, with uh, give me a bottle of anything. Yeah. Glazed donut to go. Although the best is when that very that that very large woman comes storming into the convenience store and goes, my doctor said I need to take a laxative. Still <laughs> cracks me up every time. <laughs> yeah. And, it's it's still Dave, man. Him and Pete Angelis had such an eye for comedy. Getting back to the movie, who knows what it would have that it would it would have been called a farce. It would have been qu- called a quote David Lee Roth vehicle, the yeah. same way like Ford Fairlane was an Andrew Dice Clay vehicle. But you know what? You know it would have been hilarious. You know it would have had some moments. You, I'm sure it would have the most convoluted plot ever. But uh, <laughs> you know, I mean. It, I, it couldn't. It certainly probably would have been more cohesive than No Holds Barbecue. <laughs> well, you said a name a little bit before that makes my mind race a little bit. Joe Holmes, mighty Joe Holmes, as mighty I think David introduced him, if I remember. He played with Roth, and then he played with Ozzy. He was in mm-hmm. Ozzy between Zach Wild runs, and there was like a tiny Steve Vai run for Ozzy where. I think he wrote on Osmosis, but they decided he wasn't the touring guy. So, hey, that's uh, both Vi and Joe Holmes had their. I wrote with Ozzy. I, I swear I didn't know that. But I uh, I saw Mighty Joe Young. I think he was on the Osmosis tour. Uh, correct. Yes. That was, that, was, that was the album after No More Tears, which was for me just like the pit. I mean, that was like Ozzy at a whole new level. Right. And Zach Wilde would just so came into his own. And then after that. I was so disappointed that Zach wasn't on osmosis. So think about that for a second. Here's a guy who's good enough to play the Eddie Van Halen parts in this band and good enough to play the Randy Rhodes parts in that band. Could that be one of the best forgotten guitarists of all time based on the fact of the, the two hired gun gigs that he took in a three, four year period? Like what happened to Joe Holmes? That, he clearly can play anything. Yeah, exactly. I, you're, that's a really good point. My goodness, that what from a songwriting standpoint, I wonder what that could have maybe uh, put together. That put a pin in that because that has to be a separate interview, a separate uh, a separate episode because it'll just go off and off. And I gotta I gotta get my head straight on because I got a lot of ideas. Uh, kind of dream band, dream collaborations with Dave. Right. If you if wouldn't it be great if he and I'll throw one out there just and and I can't I don't want to go off on a sidecar here, but yeah. you mentioned Zach Wild. That could have been interesting. Sure. If uh, there's there's one or two songs that are detuned on a different kind of truth. Um, uh, Honey, baby, sweetie. Uh, sweet, what is it? Honey, baby, sweetie, sweetie, doll, sweetie. Doll. That's the detuned Eddie Van Halen that we also hear on um, Me Wise Magic. There's not a lot of like lower Van Halen guitar riffs like that. And that's not that far off from some of the stuff that Zach Wilde does. No, and I'll tell you, if you look at some of the more acoustic stuff Black Label Society did, it's 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 swampy, it's bluesy in parts, right? I mean, it's it's got kind of that kind of soulful sort of thing to it. 
that could have been that. There you go, folks. That's just a preview of our future <laughs> future dream collaborations. Dave dream collaborations on a future upcoming episode of the DLR cast. Okay, you mentioned Honey Baby Sweetie Doll, and folks, um, this is just how we work here. I'm telling you, this was not planned this way, but that's the perfect segue. And I was going to bring that up. That's the perfect segue to bring up possibly my favorite rock album of the year and that's wolfgang van halen's debut uh, record which just popped last week just dropped last week and that's mammoth wvh man i'm telling you that album from start to finish just slays me it is the real thing it is the goods i, I can't t- I, every time i listen to that i love it more and more yeah uh can't top that I haven't spent nearly as much time with it as you have. Um, if, if I can say the most Hollywood thing I could ever say, <laughs> I've been busy the last week and a half watching screeners related to the Tribeca Film Festival. I got on the list all because I wanted to go see Kiss play right. that live thing. And they declined me for that, and they gave me the virtual pass. And it's like, oh, well, I guess I'll watch a bunch of movies before they come out. Cool. Oh, for- but if only uh, they knew if only they knew the movies was actually secondary for you. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to see kids. Like, that was it. <laughs> and uh, so as a result, you know, movies aren't shorter than an hour twenty five. So watching movie after movie after movie, you know, Wolfie took a back seat for me the last week and a half. I get it. Well, uh, the reason why I bring up Honey Baby Sweetie Doll is that that song was to me was one of the songs that uh, is a good precursor, I think, to the sounds that they got on that album, which Wolf brings to bear on his debut album. Now, we talked about this before and we talked about it when Eric on the Van Halen News Desk was here a couple episodes ago. and We talked mm-hmm. about the most underrated songs. And that was I remember I brought up the fact and I still believe this, that the heaviest van halen record not just in playing but also in sound right is a different kind of truth i was listening to van halen 3 recently i was listening to me wise magic Um, some of i was listening to a bit of balance just there's songs that were popping on spotify i was just listening and if you listen to production on all those albums i mean the van halen 3 production is horrible let's just put it out there (laughs) right there there's virtually hardly any rhythm section right yeah and this is no knock on michael at all no way we know he's a great vocal a great bass player and a great vocalist but sound wise and the runs that wolf does it just was so amazing what he was able to do with his dad and i think honey baby sweet i bring that one up because i don't think that was a leftover or if it was, it was very. It, it wasn't from like maybe it, it wasn't salvaged from like the 1977 demos. Right, right. There is no way that Van Halen could have predicted. Right, and also to a degree, I, th- I wonder about Chinatown too because that's the first song we've ever heard with Van Halen, where similar to exactly what Dave did back in the day with Billy Sheehan and Steve Vai, was where you had both Eddie and Wolfie doing those runs those solos uh and i think they're hammer-ons where it's just like yeah they're both playing the identical it's like a duet right and i'm telling you that's wolfie's influence whether it's from a jamming from a songwriting perspective um and 
Honey Baby Sweet All to me was a was kind of a preview in a weird way to something that I really I always thought that this record th- let's put it this way Wolfgang's album when I first started hearing the songs drop in the singles yeah I the sound didn't surprise me do you know what I mean it wasn't yeah I, I knew it was going to be a hard rock record of course but you can to, in my to my ears you can kind of hear an evolution and it just makes me wonder and makes me kind of sad too is wow I wonder what if Van Halen was to do another album, especially with Wolfie, this much more experience, this just talent has been growing, right? Uh, if if they were to do another studio record, if they had just and maybe newer stuff, or Wolfgang even more influential on the songwriting, because mm-hmm. a different kind of truth worked, that's for sure. But just the the heaviness of that record, it's the heaviest Van Halen record bar none. And oh, man, I just I love the Mammoth record. To me, it just made perfect sense. I'm with you. I'm with you on all ends there. A different kind of truth keeps getting better and better to me. I have to take back a criticism that I gave a couple episodes ago. I don't know why I didn't like the song She's the Woman. Uh, Great, great song. Oh, it's funky. It's fun, right? I was totally incorrect, off base. And you were just talking about how Wolfgang's bass playing is more instrumental in that than other records. And that song is largely rooted in the bass riff or at least the rhythm section. So good point. What could have been on, on another album? Yeah, that's to me, it's how, how the four of them together, that chemistry. And I remember Dave brought this up. I remember reading an interview a long time ago where Dave's idea was, he said, he said, you know, with Van Halen, we're not doing the stone thing. We go off on an Island and woodshed and write together. That's not how it, that's not how this works. That would have been the dream. That was never going to happen. But for however they put together a different kind of truth, it worked. If they were to do another album where, hey, we got all these jams together. Wolfie, I think, was almost like the musical director on this thing, right? That's the word. And I mean, I think he had a hand in producing it, too. I'm talking on a different kind of truth as far as these are the songs, these. uh, And I think this jam works and this thing here works. And. Clearly, Eddie gave him full reign and gave him carte blanche to do it because the kid's just ridiculously talented. Kid, he's 30 years old. (laughs) When I interviewed the engineer, Ross Hogarth, because he was being inducted into some Hollywood hard rock hall of fame or something like that two or three years ago, I'm pretty sure he reconfirmed what they said, that the music was totally done. And then it was Dave going into the Jim Henson Studios. Right adding the vocals and lyrics so and you've it, seen the videos of the sound checks of that band that seems like a band where the vocals and the lyrics were the last thing on everything no matter who the singer was yeah i think and and we've re- heard about this and read about this before where dave all the music was done for what song it was he drove around his car was it for panama i think it was and he came up with the lyrics and the melody Right. I mean, and maybe there's some scratch vocals or somebody's kind of like uh, just scratch vocals, the vocal melody. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I get that. And then uh, then the background vocals are layered on there as well. And however, however they put it together, it worked. And it's interesting. It was uh, in light of the fact that Wolf plays every instrument on his on his debut album. Right. 
it was almost put it was put together in pieces right i mean it's not a band he's not taping a full band together he's not taping the rhythm section laying down tracks he's got to play the put the drum track down then the bass track down then the, i mean so it's it it's almost putting together in pieces and i got to think that's maybe the way of a different kind of truth was put together too it wasn't the, uh, to a degree i mean i'm sure a lot of that the three of them were recording live uh, as far as as far as doing their parts together but then come the overdubs then come all the different yeah. backup vocals then come uh you know some other rhythm stuff in there so on the note i wanted to talk about one other thing which i thought was really cool did you get a chance to listen to the excellent excellent uh interview that rollingstone.com had with with wolfgang last week I didn't because, you know, being this big Hollywood guy ah. with all these Tribeca screeners, man. No. <laughs> the, the last lengthy thing I listened to since Joe Rogan was from two months ago. I only heard it today, in fact. The Jeremy White interview that he did with Michael Anthony, which actually had some really good insight into it. But I'm right. I like Jeremy. His interviews are good. Yeah, he definitely uh, to pull the curtain back. Most of the time when you do an interview, a publicist goes, hey, so you're going to talk about the new album and please don't ask stuff about the old stuff. And you could tell Jeremy goes, oh, OK, yeah, 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 sure. And then doesn't listen to any of that and asks what he wants. Hence how he got all this amazing information about Van Halen's inner workings from Michael Anthony, which I never heard before. But what did I miss from the Wolfgang Rolling Stone? Well, one, it's they really get into deep as far as the album itself and recording the album, which I found it was about 40 minute interview. It was really great. Uh, but as far as Van Halen concerned, he told how, and we knew some of this already. He told how he had to call Dave's management as a 14, you know, 13 year old kid or whatever it was. And basically he said, yo, it was like calling, can Dave come out and play? Yeah. And so he said, when Dave came to the studio and, and listen to this made me feel really good because it felt like it was, I think, one of the things we've touched on before, how there was no press. Was this I mean, were they really getting along? Was it really was it really all good vibes? And he Wolfie said a couple of things that really, really stuck out to me on that respect. He said uh, when Dave got there, the, you know, he came out on, a, you know, he came out on a Friday night or whatever after the call and just bam, instantly. I forgot what song he said they did. Did they do I'm on fire? I and think I'm on he fire. said he goes, it was just like the magic was, it was like, bam, just they sounded great and was off to the races. And he said Dave was so much fun and so damn funny. He brought everybody these furry hats. He said he still has it, has the furry hat. And he said, and he said, uh, you know, that uh, Dave totally accepted him in the band. He said, you know, he wouldn't have done it if he didn't. And totally, it, it, it just worked. And it was pretty good vibes initially on all that. Not saying that there's any hint or a clue that that changed at all. Right. But it was just kind of cool because, man, if ever there was anything that was fraught with tension, it was any it was any possibility of Eddie, Dave, and Alex all getting in the same room and actually playing music together again, right? Uh, after what happened in '96, and it was just really cool to hear Wolf talk about that again. Kind of a little inner workings on it there, and he said that there was a set list. He said it's probably still up in the studio, a set list of like old. And he said they went back deliberately. He said, you know, we had to. Uh, we had to, you know, they were really because I think to my ears it sounded like he alluded to the fact that they when they it was all the Dave stuff obviously because it was Dave, but the most recent thing Van Halen did pretty much was with Sammy, and that was and those early that was the, the early stuff was what d 
uh, Wolf really discovered, right, and really took to. And he said they had a jam set list on there, and all it was all Dave era Van Halen stuff, and except for the song Get Up. And Dave's looking at it. He won't be saying Dave's looking. He goes, "What's get? What is that? What the hell is that?" And then. <laughs> And Wolf said, oh, shit, that's not that was he, he said in the interview, he was like, oh, shit, that was that's not a Dave song. I better get that. We're not doing that one. You know, I mean, just it's cool that, again, it's the biggest mystery in rock is what goes on behind those curtains at 5150. Right. And so when little stuff comes out like that or that Michael Anthony interview or the Noel Monk book or whatever, it's like, man, I just eat that stuff up. Did you ever see? The 1998 or 1999 MTV News uh, segment where Eddie gives a tour of 5150 to Chris Connolly. Yes, but I haven't played. So I'm hoping that's on YouTube. It's been a long time since I saw that. It's on bootleg YouTube. And oh. <laughs> that, that came recommended to me two or so weeks ago. You know, between all these Tribeca Film Festival uh, screeners and these eight- you know it's between all those of course you know the masses um but it actually answered a few questions that we've been craving which was about the archives what's in the archives are there archives and the answer is yes there are the archives but what happened was van halen had a computer they bought at radio shack come on 80s that they entered what was on every master reel tape and it crapped out and they couldn't get it fixed. Well, they still have the master tapes. The, the, they have the tapes. Originally, they'd cataloged all the tapes, but they lost all the information as to what's on the tapes as of 1998. So they would have to go back and go listen to them all. That There needs to be a full art, an archivist on there working about 40 hours a week for about three months. I th- I think so. But the visuals of what the tapes look like behind them doesn't look that far off from the photos of that Wolfie's posted of himself at the piano in 5150. Now, they redid 5150 over the years. That's confirmed through an anecdote or two that Eddie tells. Like, this is maybe a 10-minute segment, but it's the most informative 10 minutes he'll ever see about how Van Halen works. He tells actually a really cute story about Wolfgang and he's like four or five at the time, something really, really young. This is the thing I recommend going back to watch, but it was good to know that archives do exist. It's just somebody has to go through them. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff to say the least. Well, all right, my friend on that. Oh, sorry. uh, Ultimate classic rock. Uh, Do we say thank you to them? Do we, do we, Ask if somebody from UCR wants to be on the show. (laughs) I think it's great minds think alike. I, for folks who don't know, I love that website. Uh, They did a thing. They just posted, what was it today? Sunday, uh, the most underrated songs and Dave, Dave solo stuff. And we went, Hmm, we were talking about that a month ago on an episode. I just think it's coincidence. I perhaps their fans, they did a great job. Yes. I love it. I, I, I read it twice. And I, I love lists like that. And Ultimate Classic Rock is the best at doing those lists when they rank stuff. I devour those things for even yeah. bands that I hardly even like, for goodness sakes. Yeah. Because I just I love that kind of writing and I love listicles and things like that. And it, and even if it's a band I'm I not even like that much, it's like, oh, yeah, 
that number eight, uh, like they, I was reading recently Fleetwood Mac albums ranked because it was, I I think it was the anniversary to the Mirage album, which followed up Tusk. I love the Mirage album that had hold me on it. Don't get me started on how that fueled a ninth grade crush on a sing (laughs) uh, on a college age waitress who may have, may not have been batting the other side of the plate. I don't really didn't really know at the time, but I was deep on a crush and I just heard that song hold me. I used to write little charts out all the time. Right. I used to write these charts, my weekly top, you know, my own little music charts. And I'm telling you, summer of 82, Hold Me was like my number one song, for goodness sakes, for about two months straight. So right. anyway, but Ever get, heard the Heim cover of Hold Me, by the way. No. Oh, they, there was a Fleetwood Mac tribute album of some sort eh, seven, eight years ago. And Heim had a great cover of Hold Me on it. Wow, I have to d- dig that because I'm a big Christine McVie fan. But getting back to Ultimate Classic Rock, they had this great. I, it was, uh, okay, it was, God, was it? Yeah, I think it was Fleetwood Mac albums ranked, and it's like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot about that. So, God bless them, they did a good job. Yeah, I, it's, I, I, I dug it. We'll just, that's fine. I, I agree. Their listicles are maybe the best of any rock-oriented website, and are they part of the Loudwire family? Yes, I believe they are. Hey, Loudwire supports rock and wrestling, so much respect for me as well. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> all right. But, uh, that was the interruption. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Steve, for, for being Steve. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, till next time, it's Darren and Steve. You're on the DLR cast. Thank you for downloading and streaming, and we will catch up with everyone soon. Indeed, thanks. <laughs>